Hello, Rejects. I'm Brent. And I'm Dave. Welcome to Rejected Central, a podcast that seeks to elevate the rejection experience. In this episode, we're going to explore the extreme lengths to which women have gone, and we'll go to fight for women's rights. And we're going to talk to a pioneer in the field, although she probably wouldn't describe herself as such. So welcome to Rejected Central, pioneers of rejecting the status quo. Joining us today is author and superhuman Kelly S. Thompson. Kelly's a legend. She's a veteran. Oh award. Yeah, right? This is where it... And we know about the love-ins <laughs> that we get on the broadcast <laughs> side of things, Kelly. This is radio shows and all of that. Um, she's an award-winning essayist, renowned memoirist, and all-around phenomenal person. She's hosted my launch and she's read my books, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and she considers herself first and foremost a creative writer, which is how our paths converged to the writing program at the University of British Columbia. I've read both of her books, Girls Need Not Apply, Field Notes from the Forces, and most recently, Still I Cannot Save You, a memoir of sisterhood, love, and letting go. And both of them are absolutely phenomenal, and I can't recommend them highly enough. And Kelly is online at www.kellysthompson.com, and make sure to follow her on social media. We'll put more information in the show description. Said of her book, Still I Cannot Save You, quote, and this is where we get to read the fancy stuff that we love so much, <laughs> the blurbs. Thompson is a master storyteller, I would echo that, who asks readers to examine their turbulent relationships with troubled family members and the incredible bonds that hold us together. Her beautiful and affecting prose will leave you with a terrible ache in your heart or your chest, rather. It will shatter your heart and then mend it together with tenderness and finely wrought insight. I sobbed, laughed, and cheered for Thompson and her sister. Heroic and unforgettable. And that is from Lindsay Wong, the author of The Woo Woo, which might be the best title of a book ever. Yeah, right. And uh, (laughs) tell me pleasant things about immortality. Kelly, welcome to Rejected Central. I'm blushing showing up here. My face is on fire, but thank you. I'm excited to be here with both of you. Well, and one of our very first guests, which is which is such a privilege for us as well, mm-hmm. as I we mean. as we get this thing launching. All right, so um, I think it's always fun to do uncomfortable icebreakers um, because I love when meeting organizers do that. They just sort of throw stuff and put strangers together. Um, so I'm going to do something that mildly, mildly uncomfortable. I'm going to read a famous rejection letter to you, and I have a question for you at the end. Okay. okay. All right. But you know, as a memoirist, that very few things make me uncomfortable at the same time. So I'm just like setting that stage. Okay. But I'm ready. Fair. Absolutely fair. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to try, though. <laughs> Dear Madam, I am only one, only one, only one, only one being, one at the same time, not two, not three, only one, only one life to live, only 60 minutes in one hour, only one pair of eyes, only one brain, only one being, being only one, having only one pair of eyes, having only one time, having only one life, I cannot read your manuscript three or four times, not even one time, only one look. Only one look is enough. Hardly one copy would sell here. Hardly one. Hardly one. Many thanks. I'm returning the manuscript by registered post. Only one manuscript by one post. (laughs) Sincerely yours, 
AC Fifield. Fifield, I don't even know. I don't even want to say his name. You only get one chance to say it. Yeah. (laughs) I butcher a name on principle for there. All right, Kelly, any guesses as to, and I'll give you a slight hint as to what feminist writer was rejected with such a... One letter. One (laughs) letter. With one, yeah. Any guesses? Joyce Carol Oates. That's an excellent guess. But no. Okay. Any others? Gertrude Stein? Yes. Wow. <laughs> On the second effort, Gertrude Stein from April 19th, 1912. And oh, how it makes us feel so good as writers when editors can eat their words a little bit because we get rejected a lot. But he had an awful lot of words for no. <laughs> Do you have to be saucy about it? Can't, like, you know, our world is hard enough. Can't you just say no and move on? You got to like belabor it with your 900 spouts of poetry. Like get over yourself at the same time, whoever wrote the letter. Well, and talk about the, I don't know, it's not mansplaining. What, what's it's the a 20th century version of peacocking perhaps? The earliest one. <laughs> like, I can you do know? this better I can than do, you. I look, at, look at me go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. This rejection letter is better than your manuscript. That's, it's quite insulting. Eh? It's, oh, like, that, yes. I think so. It I'll, seems to me a little bit of, like, perhaps a sense of knowing that his writing wasn't quite where hers was. So you really got to, you know, knock someone down a couple pegs to feel good about yourself. That's, mm, yeah. That never happens. No. <laughs> no 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 there's no envy in the world where people try to we've come a long way in 100 from, years uh, yeah oh yes <laughs> yes <clears throat> all right on that note um i'm thinking there's a glass ceiling metaphor that we could probably get into here yeah uh but uh, just a little bit of background about why i thought about kelly um but i thought about having you on the show because a number of months ago, I started listening to a very not safe for work podcast called The Dollop. Um, and they did an episode on the suffragette bombings. And, mm. and I, you know, I just, I just, I had no idea. And when I started, when we started thinking about putting together this podcast, I was like, well, how can we investigate that? the rejection, like what the ultimate rejection of the status quo, right? I mean, we almost assume that when there's violence in the world, you know, when it comes to political aims, when it comes to terrorism, when it comes to all of those things, we generally, especially from our Western standpoint, assume that it's men, right? Um, but I, 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 I thought of somebody who could speak to feminism because you're like one of the strongest people I know. And oh. yeah, I can't say the strongest because I married that one, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, I thought of you. Um, I don't think of you as an extreme person, but I do think of you as uh, a woman, as a veteran, who's not afraid to look, quote, extreme, unquote, in the eye, if that makes any sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I think it also comes from, like, your girl's tired, Brent. Like, sometimes you just get tired of pushing up against the boxes that people want to put you in as well. And also age, like part of it comes from wanting to embrace that I can be, call myself a feminist and I, but I can also be really love lipstick like I do and a really colorful dress. And those two things can hang out together and be all right. So um, I'm really honored you think so. Got to stand up for my fellow ladies yeah. and non-binary <laughs> folks. How, how would you describe 
if I could call it a brand of feminism, how would you describe your mm. own brand of feminism? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> you know what's <laughs> funny, actually, my first book, they wanted to call it feminist field notes from the forces. And I had a panic, like, no, you can't, because it'll immediately alienate all these people. And in particular, I was thinking about uh, women that I worked with in the military. You know, we were loath to identify as a feminist because it instantly made you, quote unquote, a man hater. And when you work with 90% men, you don't have the luxury of, quote unquote, being a man hater. So it was not an identity I wanted to claim. And it was only until I, you know, got older and did more research and more reading and more communing with other people who are marginalized where you go, well, what's wrong with staking that claim? Nothing. So I think my identity as a feminist is very individualized. It gets to be whatever I want it to be. And I don't need it to look like this and this. And we talk about first wave and second wave. We talk about a lot of feminism that has wounded people of color and excluded them from that conversation. I want to be the kind of feminist who's always learning and growing because that's also the kind of person I want to be. I want to be learning where I've made wrongs and learning where I've said things that have hurt people. And so it has to be very individualized and inclusive. And that's, I guess, what I strive to be. The two eyes. I, I think of you as a, a tenacious, gracious person. Um, this is something, this is from an interview that you did with Medium. This is you now. I often think that tenacity is a skill the military taught me, but tenacity has become more applicable as I age and work as a writer. And I'm thinking, actually, I'm just adding, as a feminist, it sounds like too. Mm -hmm. Writing life is so full of disappointment and rejection, working away in solitude, so it requires you to trust in yourself and keep going. I definitely need tenacity when finishing a PhD, Dr. Kelly, or I'd still be rolling in some academic pit of despair. In the spirit of feminism and extremes, and I think it, it's only fair if we talk about our lives as writers here and rejection and from a writerly perspective. Mm. Um, can you talk about life as a, as a woman writer um, as it applies to rejection? Oh, yes. So my first book in particular and I'm always really open about this because I don't feel like we talk about it enough because, you know, there is jealousy within a profession where it's just so stinking competitive, you know, mm. but there's also, um, we all want to be considered good at our jobs, right? So when you feel like you're one of the people at the bottom of the pack, it's a bit depressing. And I remember Brent, when we did our degrees and, you know, they would give us a grade and then they'd tell you what the class average was. Right. I was always below that class average. And I'd be like, I'm never going to be anything, you know? And you it was are so, so my people. I so get that. <laughs> I, it was really devastating. And then I, you know, it, I think it says a lot that my first book started out as fiction. You know, I was fictionalizing a woman's experience in the military and I had them at war and I wanted it to be like, because that's how I thought it would be appealing to a reader. I didn't think the everyday story of a woman in the forces was appealing to anyone. And I was told that it wasn't as well by a lot of people in the industry. And then the industry also told me that 
when I, you know, I tried to revise it. I made it into nonfiction. My agent was taking it out to sell it. No one wanted it. It was crickets. And I was, and we were like, well, maybe I start a whole new book. And then the Me Too movement happened. Mm. And then suddenly it sold in a preempt with um, McClellan, Stuart Penguin, Random House. The book didn't change. I didn't make it better in that, you know, six month window. Some of it was luck and time. And some of it was we finally had an appetite for these stories because it's really easy to pretend that the ugly moments of our history or a background don't exist. And we we have enough conflict in the world, we don't always want to face it, right? So I think uh, I was in a right place at a right time with a relevant story. But I also look at, um, do, you got, do you guys know Melissa Phoebos? I don't. Mm. <laughs> I'm obsessed with her writing. I think she's a genius. <laughs> mm. She wrote some really great essays. She first wrote um, a memoir called Whip Smart about her work um, as a dominatrix. And she got her MFA. She did a really great book on um, called Girlhood that was about sort of women as they're just starting to be sort of sexualized by men and how that makes young women feel. But then she, for me, what's relevant to this conversation, I swear I have a point, is she wrote a book <laughs> called Body Work, The Power of the Personal Narrative. Now and that title about- I actually know. I have seen that title. Yeah. Okay. You will read it and feel stupid because you will read it and go, I will never be this smart in the dawn of time. Like, that's how I feel when I read this woman. She is Mm. just, she takes everything that's in my head in a bit of a word soup and then makes it sound really ingenious. And she points out that for a long time, we didn't want women's stories. These were not the stories that sold. And these were not the stories that um, sold because of the way the market was regarded at the time, the people who were in power in publishing houses. Um, Our world is changing and suddenly we have an appetite for those things. So, you know, when it comes to tenacity, I think everyone needs that in the writing industry because it's so, we're just in our little rooms, you know, by ourselves, plugging away. And you're told not no nine times more than you're ever told yes. But um, you really do have to believe in yourself and you have to start getting really comfortable with who you are, which I think plays into me as a feminist as well. Not to mention the after effects when people read it. (laughs) Sorry, when you mean the after effects in terms of responding to people who have read the book and have feedback for you? And again, I'd say nine times out of 10, those messages are lovely messages of support people who identify with it and say, oh, this, you know, this sexual harassment was something I lived every day in the military too, or in my, you know, super male oriented workplace or uh, wonderful men emailing me to tell me, you know, I read your book so I could be better, be a better boss to the women who work with me. And, but then I also get some hate mail. Um, Hmm. It's not lost on me that my my book has resulted in both men and women writing to tell me that I should be raped silent. Wow. Um, wow. To write about literally being sexually harassed or people I used to work with who had said nothing ever happened to you and you were fine at the time. Jeez. How do you well, respond to that kind of, I'm not even going to dignify it with the word criticism because there's such a f- wonderful thing about actual criticism when it's, when it's done well. 
that's just yes. abusive. How do you respond to that kind of abuse in response to something that you have poured so much of yourself into and, 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 you know, and put so much of yourself out there and been rejected so many times? Like this is not, you don't pull any punches. This is, this is no. hard stuff. Yeah. There's, there's lots of Kelly in here. And I, and this is the hard thing about nonfiction is on top of when you get like, um, reviews, they're almost always reviewing your life more than you're, they're reviewing your writing. It's the weird part of nonfiction. Um, when the messages are abusive, I always save them because sometimes they escalate, hmm. which is sad. I never dignify them with a response. These are people, I do a lot of inner work of saying, these are people who are hurting in a very different way that cannot be dealt with by me. I cannot make them feel better about this. And they're mad about something that is really not my book. Um, and I really focus on the beautiful work that has come from speaking out about this kind of thing, because it is really scary. And I'm not pretending that I don't sometimes sit and have a cry and feel a bit sorry for myself when people's emails can get to you. Hmm, but um, the military has invited me to travel all over Canada to come talk about how to make this better. I've been giving lectures to um, the Coast Guard cadets who were graduating. And um, next next month, I've been asked to come speak to the organization that's been stood up in the forces to affect culture change and to talk as quote unquote, an expert, which I find funny as you know, I'm, I'm just someone who wrote about the reality of it. I'm not, are you an expert because you ex experienced it, I suppose, but it's because it's really scary to come forward and talk about this stuff. So I remember my dad saying at one point, that he thought, he said, I, I thought you were really brave when you joined the military, but this is you being really brave. And I think it is. When you you're know, going talking about change that needs to happen and how you've been invited in to be a part of that conversation. Yeah. And it's wow. really hard sometimes to return to talk to people who are in uniform, an organization that really wounded me in a lot of different ways. Um, and to recognize that there's... There is change and there are people who are still great, of course, like a lot. I mean, my husband's still serving in the military, so I can't I can't hate the forces. You know, it's given me a great life in a million different ways. And it helped shape the kind of feminist I was. You know, when I went into the military, my parents raised me in such a way where I had such deference to people in authority that I let it cow me, even when I should have been standing up for myself. Um their authority over me as someone in the military was not their authority over my body. It didn't give them permission to touch me when I didn't want to be touched or to use me like some sort of, you know, every accomplishment being attributed to my body. Um, so it's also sometimes a product of our times. And I think a lot of us can recognize that too. I can tell the difference between you look nice today versus you look nice today. Hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not an idiot. So I think we have this feeling now like, oh, we can't say anything. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course you can. But it's always the people who have the most to lose who have been behaving the poorest who are really upset about all the stuff they can't say anymore. You know, maybe we just aim to not wound people. And that's how we grow. Saying something takes courage, unfortunately. Right. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, especially learning what we've learned from girls need not apply. Um, I, I think of 
you doing the work you're doing now and the invitations you've received by the military to come and help have those discussions. I also think about some of the discussions that you couldn't have while you were in service. You know, I think about, um, you, you write about, I think one of the main antagonists in the, in the, in the memoir is, is someone called Captain Murphy, um, that was your mentor and superior officer. Um, I'm going to read a little piece here because I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about going back into that environment to talk about what you've learned and being invited to do that with such a contrast with how difficult it was for you to talk about it when you were in the middle of it. I, I find yeah. that really, really interesting. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit from, from your memoir here. Uh, so you've brought the, you want to go on a course and learn about um, how to do your job better, basically. And you've struggled with physical injury, but this particular course is not about the rucksacking and the, the route marching and the hoorah. It, it, and you know that. Um, I'd be fine, ma'am, you said. It's a desk-based course, exactly what I do here. But there may be field-based elements to it, carrying a rucksack and that kind of thing, she said. My silence said what we both knew. There were no field elements to the course. Until we know more about your medical situation, I think we should hold back. Besides, you're not ready for the course anyway. I'm not ready to learn how to do my job? I was unable to hide the snide tone from my voice. You spoke up. In a moment there, you, in a way you spoke up, but there was so much that you couldn't say. Tell us about um, Captain Murphy and, and that dynamic of being invited. It's really interesting that you talk about the invitations you have now, like I mentioned earlier, um, and what you could not say then. You know, it's funny. She's one of the most complicated people in the book to me. And I thought it would maybe be myself or my dad or something. She was a, you know, a woman in the military. She was 60 years old. I was 20 at the time. And what I know now and what I learned by writing the book was she was a woman who was considered herself very much a feminist and yet policed everything about me. I smiled too much and therefore she felt I was flirting with everyone. And why was I baking and bringing it stuff into work? So bringing that stuff into work, it would make me look weak. And who was I trying to impress? And it was like, I couldn't do anything without, why was my hair getting so long? Did I, did I change the color? It looked better before. Weird comments like that. We were joking, semi-joking about the editors who, well, this particular one that we read, holding someone back. Right. And we, yeah. we said, oh, that never happens. <laughs> but this is an example of that, right? Where where the person who's supposed to push you the most is by some, you know, all of the levels of consciousness, subconsciously, consciously keeping you from doing it, telling you you shouldn't do it. And she told me it was at one point to protect me from the rejection of what it would be if I didn't do well. Well, I went on that course and I was the top student out of 102 students. I, it wasn't to protect me from anything, but it was always a, you know, this is the hard part about feminism in the military and why I was so nervous about having that word attached to my book. 
women were some of the hardest on me and to each other. And um, there's a really great book called Outstanding in the Field by Sandra Perron, who was our first uh, Canadian female infantry officer. And her and I were talking, we were talking about writing. And she said, you know, you didn't want to associate with other women because women were weak. And Sandra Perron was not weak. Sandra Perron was like at the top of everything. Yes. I, was I have her book. We share a publisher. It's an excellent. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. Perron. I mean, she's just a, 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 a lovely human being. And the shame we both feel about that. You know, I put up with a lot of things. I feel shame about the things I put up with and the way I was silent. I did it partly to survive, but I also did it to fit in. And that's not something I like about myself because I like to think I'm someone who stands up when it's not, when something's not right. It's the whole reason I like to think I joined the military. One of the reasons in the first place. Right. So, um, no one wants to be, Oh, the word rejection again. No one wants to be rejected by their <laughs> peers, right? You want to fit in. And it's really hard to fit in when you're girly and bubbly and 20 years old and all your colleagues are male and at least in their for late 40s slash 50s. And so I thought I would have some camaraderie with this woman, but she was so hard on me. And she used to say all the time, it's like she wanted to prevent me from being, you know, in the same situation that she'd been in in certain times in her career. And if I didn't do exactly as she told me, then uh, I would be looked down on because they would see me as weak. Up to and including who you should be friends with. Who know. I should be friends with, who I should date with, who yeah. I should, everything. And and I thought, I remember thinking like, if I can't even be who I am and and be good at my job, what's wrong with that picture? You know, um, there's been this whole new issue too. Like as of September last year, there's no gender policy anymore as it relates to clothing and hair. Like we used to be regulated as to what our hair was. You know, you know, Brent, like oh, how yes. your hair looked, everything. And it was really easy for me though. <laughs> you know, like com comparatively speaking, compared to the women that I served with in the early 90s with, you know, how far hair had to be up in the braid, how short it could be, if it was, if it dared to be a bob, if, you know, how it had to be pinned back, all of those things. We, we sit, we just couldn't touch our collar, you know, and we couldn't be bald. Basically that was it. Yes. <laughs> well, that's me. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Well, <laughs> hey, I'm having no problems with any of it I now. It already, yeah. yeah. You've got a great hairstyle for a 50-year-old. Or military when I was in, Dave. Perfect. <laughs> well, I remember the wording being conservative in style and volume as it related to your hair. Wow. And now those those things have been thrown out the window. And there's all these people who are older in the forces who, you know, this is not what they grew up with. And it's very strange to them, you know, in their careers. And I get that it's strange. But who cares? As long as you're wearing the uniform and you're presenting yourself as a professional how does that make a difference as to what you do your job? So part of it is like, we need to reframe what we look at in terms of how we define someone's capability. And I got to tell you, it's not in how many pushups I can do. Because I don't, do, I also don't iron anything anymore. This is the freedom of civilian life, Brent. <laughs> I, when did I iron something last? I can't even remember. I have a steamer. Oh, I refuse. I'm with you. I Dave, am, do you iron? Oh gosh, no, I've never ironed anything in my life. I have a steamer. That's as yeah. far as I go. And even that is, that sounds it's stretchy. Really... It's just for work. You know, <laughs> I'm not going there. Either. I wear one nice shirt at work, at work a week. That's it. So. 
Um, how do people respond? I mean, you mentioned in terms of the critical response to your works, uh, the two books has, you know, overwhelmingly positive, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely in the, the minority of getting the really negative ones. Um, I must, I, I wonder as well, when you're talking to people and this, and I had actually forgotten about the military sending you and bringing you to bases and facilities to talk to people about your book. And by extension, extending the conversation about this whole reality that you've lived, um, how, when, first of all, have you, have you had any responses that would fall into the, um, I guess the sort of, when you're in a presentation, the in-person equivalent to the email you have to save, right? Like we were talking about earlier, Uh have you had any of those and, and, and how do people and you deal with um, not being able to handle your words, right? At the, basically, I think that has a, must be a lot of what it has to do with how do people are rejecting your words, right? And I, you know, I've been really lucky in that regard in person, people are rarely willing to be that confrontational in person with me. And it's probably because I'm, I'm there at the front of the room, you know, I, I I'm like, you know, I'm the person they brought in and paid to be here. So for the most part, I'm really lucky. Um, I had one woman who was very upset by the title of my book. Oh, that's interesting. Really upset. Did she want to call it feminist field notes? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> It, it was because it said girls need not apply. And she's like, I'm very offended by that because like you're basically saying that women shouldn't be in the forces. And I said, no, it's, a, it's like a play on words from a part in the book, you know? Um, so she was upset, but she hadn't even read it. Hmm. But I think I'm very good. Like I said, at recognizing that this is not my circus. When people are upset about this kind of thing, I can't make them feel better. And I can't make them do the work to grow either. And that's, you know, it's always hard when you put a book out into the world or a lecture or whatever the case may be and hope it's received with the intent at which you put it out there. Um, I've been really lucky so far. I have had some people who sort of like get argumentative with me. I've had some men email me from their forces email accounts Hmm. And do I not find out where that email is? And I tell their boss, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I only because if you're telling me I should be raped silent from your work email, I will find you wow. and I will let your boss know the kind of thing you're putting out into the world from your work email. But for the most part, that's a kind of rejection that doesn't hurt me in the same way because it's just coming from a place of their own hurt most of the time. Recognizing that makes it a lot easier for me. I think about, you know, even my second book, which had a very real cost for me of knowing it would potentially limit my access to my sister's children. Um, mm. And has. And I remember I was also publishing an essay around that time and, um, I was talking with the editors and I was really worried. It was going in a literary magazine and I was really worried about it. And I said, I'm just worried about like rocking this boat, you know, my relationship with my, to see my sister's children. And I remember reading something at the time that said, bullies don't get to win. And this is why there's been so much silence. This is why sometimes the 
progression of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement or LGBTQ rights or a lot of these things, you know, we're people who are marginalized, people who are victims of abuse, people who are victims of sexual assault and, and sexual harassment and misconduct. There's silence because the bullies get to win. And sometimes you got to be the one person willing to put your foot in the door and say enough of it. And it's not to say I'm, you know, the bravest person on the block, but I, books are a way in which you get to step into someone else's shoes. And that is its own separate kind of power to me. Like, I'm going to put you in my head and what this experience was, and you might not agree with it, but you might sit with that and have your mind change just like the slightest little smidge. That's always my my hope from it that sort of inoculates me to the pain of people who hate it. <laughs> I, I'm glad to hear you mention earlier about um, how you respond to that sort of criticism because it is surface level criticism, right? And it, it breaks my heart to hear that, honestly. Like when you mentioned that email from that uh, person earlier, it, it really got me. And it makes me sad that for for one, you have to put up with it, but also it makes me sad to think about what kind of uh, misery and what kind of hatred about that person is that they're going to reflect it onto you, right? And I'm really encouraged to hear you say that like, you know that you will you will say something, like you will stand your ground. And I'm glad that you know for the mo- for the most part you don't take it too personally because it's not about you, it's about them, right? And it just that shattered when you said that it absolutely it got me. Like so I've, I've been kind of quiet the last few minutes. But I'm really, I'm really, I'm really encouraged that, you know, I mean, you don't take it too close to home all the time. Like sometimes you take it in stride, right? But uh, that's really, that's really tough to hear. And I'm, and I'm, I'm sorry that that, that is something that you have to deal with. Thanks, Dave. And sometimes I do take it personally, but I also take it to therapy. Mm-hmm. And I talk about it there. And I think whoever's sending this email also needs some therapy. That's Because we all need a bit of therapy sometimes. But I think <laughs> I, you know, I. I operate in a really supportive environment. And for the rest of the time, I just try to surround myself with people like you lovely too, who, who, you know, are trying to lift other people up and grow and learn, which Mm -hmm. is always how I want to move in the world. I'm glad to hear that. That's really, that's really good. The, uh, this a little bit of an awkward tie back into the suffragettes, but maybe not. We'll see how this plays out. There's never an awkward tie into suffragettes. Awkward segue. Um, Their their motto is deeds, not words. Um, And I I think that what you're talking about is a kind of way of acting, isn't it? It's a kind of response. And even though the genesis of this particular chat was the idea that women, and unfortunately, surprisingly to this guy, would go to those extreme lengths. But I'm looking at this in through a new lens a little bit in that deeds, not words, the extreme side of things, that whole definition can be updated. You know, uh, somebody saying openly on a podcast, I bring it to therapy, is a deed, right? It's a way of saying, I will take this and I will do something with it. I don't exactly know how it's going to land or how it's going to echo, or, but I have to do something with it, and it's me doing it. So that's, that's, I think that's really encouraging. But words are deeds, too, is the thing when you think about it. Words are played out in a million different forms and a million different ways. And I, re- I, w- I remember I was interviewing these two women, and they were both in the publishing industry. 
and they started their new business right around the time of um of another publisher kind of going down in Canada and I remember saying to them why this you know in a in a world that's so unstable this was like Amazon was has kind of taken down a lot of independent publishers and they said because a book really is and they both said it individually that a book is the one beautiful way to change a mind mm. and I think you know, a book, a podcast, however you consume stories, stories are deeds, right? They're, they're life-changing. Look at your stories about, you know, in boy, about um, struggling with mental health, struggling with not fitting in, struggling with sense of self and identity. I, I If you think that that book hasn't helped someone along the way, then why are we all doing it? Right. Well, I mean, that's a fair, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause I, I can't agree more with the idea that stories carry the deeds, you know, and they we're basically they changing the world we one are. page at a time, Brent. One 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 megabyte, one page, one <laughs> ear. One download. <laughs> one download at a time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna read something. It's gonna be a little bit of a spoiler, but what the heck? It's something that I think well, I'll, I'll let your own. I'll let the words from your book. This is from uh, Girls Need Not Apply. There was a story in this experience, this trip, my new cultivated relationship with Roxanne. I would write it, craft it, nurture that story into existence. No one else would tell me otherwise or control the narrative, give me orders around structure and dialogue. No, this story would be mine, and it was going to be beautiful. I love that we just talked about stories. That, that was <laughs> super awesome. cool. And I was like, oh, I, I actually was planning on reading this little quote at the end of our interview. You're lovely. welcome. Yes, thank you. <laughs> lovely, lovely, lovely. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I think I'm just going to wrap up on that. Kelly, thank you so much for being here. Oh, what a pleasure, both of you. Such delightful humans. We'll have to think of some other way to tie rejection into the Kelly S. Thompson phenomenon. Oh, please. She's got a million. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll just do the regular writerly stuff. Then you'll be hearing from us. That's awesome. That's right. <laughs> Kelly's books can be found wherever you buy your books and at your local library. Follow her through www.kellysthompson.com and on social media. Sources for this episode are Medium, McClellan and Stewart, Vice, Time Magazine, The New Yorker, National Public Radio, Wikipedia, and, well, basically everything else online. We're looking for your rejection stories that push beyond the everyday. If you have a rejection story or idea for the show, reach out through rejectedcentral8 at gmail.com or social media or our podcast website, rejectedcentral.com. Thanks for listening, Rejects. See you next time.